Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It's easy to forget when you're halfway through one of these books of the New Testament that what you're reading is actually an epistle, a letter. We're reminded at the beginning and the end that that's what it is, that much of what we have preserved in Scripture in the New Testament uh, is epistolary in form. These are letters that were, were sent to sometimes specific churches, or in the case of Peter's epistles, kind of circular letters that would have traveled from church to church. At the very beginning, as he addressed his audience, his, his listeners, the people that he's, he's writing to, he referred to those people, those Christians, as elect exiles, chosen exiles. And that idea, those two seemingly contradictory identities, has been one of the, the threads that we've tried to, to unpack a little bit over the course of this uh, now 23-part study of what turns out to be actually a pretty short book. We try to understand what it is Peter means by this. At the end of his letter, in passing, he will bring these themes up again. You probably know that, that the, the parting shot in these epistles can sometimes be frustrating. Maybe you're reading an epistle of Paul, and right at the very end, as he's sort of saying his goodbyes, I want to thank these people, I want to thank that person, commend that person, tell these two people to be reconciled. And suddenly we're finding out all of these little snippets of stories that are never elaborated on. People are mentioned and we're like, I have no idea who this person is, and I'd really like to know more about that. Little mysteries, in other words, that are found in these texts. As Peter signs off in 1 Peter, we have a few of those. But we also have some interesting echoes of the ground that we've already covered. We're just looking at three verses this morning, starting in verse 12 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The words of Peter that stand out to me as I read those closing sentences are these. He says, first of all, that he's briefly written to them. I've written you a short letter. Its purpose is to exhort and declare that this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God. The thing that I've been talking to you about, the thing that I've written to you about, I've written to remind you what the true grace of God really is. Whenever people say something like that, this is the true thing, There's an implication in that statement that there are other things that are not true, that are less true, that are false. When Peter says, I've written to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, he implies that there's also a false grace that we ought to be aware of. 
that we ought to be on guard against. And we ought to ask ourselves too, well, if this is the true grace, like, like what grace is it that you're referring to? Think about the ground that we've covered in this letter, the things that Peter has taught us. He's essentially given us a snapshot, a summary of the true grace of God. What is the true gospel? What is the real faith that was delivered to the apostles? In this brief exhortation, he's told us a few things. He's told us that we have been born again to a living hope. That the purpose of our salvation, our birth in Christ, is forward-looking. That our hope is set in the future, not in the present. But that in the present, we are called to be holy. That we're meant to be a spiritual house for Jesus Christ. A temple, if you will. A body. A place for God to dwell. That's what he's doing. He's building us up. In chapter 2, Peter referred to us believers as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But despite all that, he goes on to say that as the people of God, we ought to be in submission to authority, to human authority for the Lord's sake. Some cases where that's good authority, and some cases where it's not so good authority. That we submit not because of the quality of the authority, but for the sake of the Lord. And further, Peter has told us that we suffer for the Lord's sake as well. That we suffer. That it may be necessary, that it may be the will of God that we endure suffering. And this suffering is not a shame to us. It's not something that we should feel uh, guilty about. Something that we should try to hide. The suffering that we endure certainly is not a sign that God has not favored us or He's changed His mind about us or no longer loves us. Rather, Peter says, when we suffer for Christ, this is one of the ways we follow after Him. That as people born into Christ, we're meant to be conformed to His image. And when we look at the life of Christ, He suffers. And we ought to expect that the same would be true for us. This is the true grace that Peter has described to us. This is what the Gospel really looks like. This is what it truly promises and also what it doesn't promise. I mean, the most striking aspect of Peter's true grace to our ears, I think, is surely the, the way that he speaks about suffering. The true grace doesn't pull its punches on the question of suffering. There is a false grace right, that we can, can discern reading between the lines. If the true grace is honest about suffering, the false grace is not. There is a gospel that holds Jesus out as a remedy against suffering. Jesus is, is the one who, if you believe in Him, and if you trust in Him, and if you follow Him, your pain will go away. Your bank balance will swell. Everything that you do will succeed. You will get the Midas touch from God. That's what Jesus promises. And if that doesn't happen for you, it's because your faith just isn't big enough. And if you could just believe more, then, then God would give you more. 
in this life, this false grace promises you that you won't have to suffer. Which kind of suggests that people who do suffer, people who claim to be Christians but still suffer, I mean, how good a Christian could they really be? If you've ever found yourself looking at at a person who is struggling, at a person who is um, in pain, and judging them, and seeing that the reason why this is happening to them is, is because of who they are, and knowing that this would never happen to you because of who you are, then you've drunk a little bit of this false grace. This false grace leads us to assume that when we suffer, we deserve it. When we suffer, it must be a sign that God doesn't love us. Prosperous people must be loved by God, and those who struggle must not be. So we tell ourselves. The reason that this kind of false grace is appealing is that the problem of sin that we're focused on solving is its corrosive effect on human happiness. Remember, last time we distinguished between the the, uh, penalty of sin, the condemnation, just condemnation, that sinners receive for the wrong that they've done. We distinguish between that and the power of sin, like the way that sin rules and reigns in our lives, distorts our actions, our, our desires. I think we make a similar separation when we think about what our need is. And a lot of people turn to Jesus in order to solve the problem of their life not working out as successfully as they'd hoped. Their happiness not being as complete. Sin is a problem because sin gets in the way of human flourishing. It's because of sin that we get old. It's because of sin that we die. It's because of sin that we are surrounded by people who don't put our interests ahead of their own. Because they're sinners. False grace offers itself as a solution. Jesus will help you succeed in this life despite the obstacles. Jesus will help you False grace holds Jesus up as a kind of self-help. But true grace, by contrast, is focused on the bigger problem of condemnation that comes from sin. True grace is all about that enduring the humiliation now in order to enjoy the exaltation to come. Instead of promising happiness now, true grace promises eternal life. And those who preach that gospel, the apostles who preach that gospel, say as part of it, that part of enjoying that eternal life may be enduring suffering now, hardship now. Never in the gospel does any apostle proclaim Jesus as a way of avoiding suffering. Now. Jesus is proclaimed as a way of enjoying life eternally. But of course, in order to want that true grace, you have to see the true extent of your problem. If all sin means to you is that things aren't perfect, if all it means is that you're not as good as you could be, then you're looking for a smaller gospel than the one that the apostles are offering. Because you've got a smaller problem to deal with. But when you see the true extent of sin, 
then suddenly that false grace becomes hollow and and trite. That false grace becomes almost worthless because it doesn't address the real problem. It becomes offensive too because it labels the glorious endurance of God's people as failure. And it labels Christians who are at ease in their indifference to the suffering of others as blessed. True grace doesn't pull its punches when it comes to suffering. True grace doesn't equate your blessings in this life with the the, the volume of love that God has for you. Rather, true grace recognizes that we may be called to endure great things, terrible things, for the name of Christ, but that even that is worth it for what's being promised. And this true grace, as Peter says, is big enough to stand in. He says not only this is the true grace, but then he goes on to say, stand in it, stand firm in this grace. And when it comes to understanding faith, I think the, the, the metaphor that is most accessible to us is the idea of the journey. Right? That faith is a journey. That all of us, when it comes to the life of faith, we're all in process. We're all learning. We're all discovering. So it's important, obviously, to be merciful, to be indulgent to others who are on a different path, maybe have, have developed differently, haven't come as far. I think there's a good emphasis in, in this idea of faith as a journey on the process of sanctification. I think it really does remind us to be merciful towards others and sometimes to, to humble ourselves a little bit as well. And yet, when the apostles speak of faith, not only do they use the, this journey metaphor, but they also speak of faith as a place to stand. Now, Archimedes once said that if you gave him a lever and a place to stand, he could move the world. Well, the apostles had a lever. It was the Holy Spirit. And they had a place to stand. It was this true grace, this true gospel that had been given to them. They did indeed move the world, and it continues to be moved. At the end of the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul says exactly the same thing. After having gone through this this profound theological exposition, he ends by saying, having done all to stand, to stand. All of the armor of God, all of the equipping that he gives, its purpose is to allow us to stand, to stand in place. This is the truth, the apostles say. Stand here, stand firm, and don't waver. Don't let them push you off this ground. Jude wrote a really brief book, really brief, but at the very beginning reveals that he didn't get to write the epistle he wanted to. We read this in verse 3 of Jude. Just verse 3. There's just the one chapter. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For Jude, the faith is not something you find at the end of a journey. 
It's not something that comes to you at the end of your pilgrimage. Instead, the faith is already here. It's already been delivered once for all, he says, to the saints. You should cling to it and contend for it. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the journey and and the place to stand? Uh, It's not a a difference of of right and wrong. It's It's a difference of angles or layers. When we talk about faith as a journey, we emphasize our subjective experience, the way that the Holy Spirit is working in our particular lives. But when the apostles speak of the faith as a place to stand, they're emphasizing the objectivity of the gospel. The objective faith that was received from Christ and preserved by the apostles in Scripture. The point isn't to stop thinking about faith as a journey and start thinking about it as a place to stand. But it would be helpful if we stopped thinking about faith as only a journey and never a place to stand. It would help if we stopped thinking that there's nothing objective in our faith, that it's purely a matter of subjective growth. Admittedly, on a journey you move, you change, you discover. And there's something appealing about that to us. When we talk about standing in place, It doesn't sound as fun. If you tell kids to run around and and be wild, that's enjoyable. If you say, stand there, just stand there, stand firm right there, that's not so appealing. There's no movement, growth, development, or change. It's just like the opposite. Not moving, not changing. doesn't resonate. But think about it this way. Have you ever found yourself on a lonely road in the middle of nowhere, with one bar of signal on your phone, at the moment when someone has sent you a file attachment that you desperately need to look at immediately. Uh, This has happened to me so many times. I, I can't tell you the frustration of knowing there was information waiting for me that I really wanted to have and being unable to access it. So you find yourself moving a little bit, you know, this way and that way, Right, and it, you maybe creep up to two bars. You get a little bit of a data signal, and it looks like something's coming in, and then suddenly it's gone. And you keep looking for it. Where, where can I stand? Where can I be? Admittedly, like I confess, there are times when I've pulled over, stopped in the journey, so that I could be stationary in a place that had enough of a signal to where I could get the messages to download. That's the value of standing. The value of standing firm. Sometimes you need to be in the same place long enough in order to get what's being given to you, what's being delivered. You find a place to stand that gives you more bars, lets you keep the signal, you're going to stand there. Something was delivered to the saints. Something was given to the church. Once for all, Jude says, complete and whole in its, in its purity, in its beauty, in its power. And this thing that was given to them is given to us as well. And they say, stand there and receive it. Stand firm in it. Get it. Get it all. Because if you move around, you might lose the signal. You might get the message, but it takes a lot longer than it would have otherwise. You might get part of the message, but not all of it. Or you may find yourself so far from the signal that you don't even realize 
there's a message to get. Stand firm. Stay long enough where you need to be in order to receive what's been passed down from the very beginning of the church. But of course, in order to stand anywhere, for any length of time, there's got to be enough room to stand. There's got to be a, a place to stand. You can't stand firm on a thin ledge. So when Peter says to stand firm in this true grace, he implies that you can stand firm in it, that there is enough room here to stand. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've, you've known people who professed faith in Christ, who, as far as you could tell, uh, genuinely believed. And then later on, you, you run into them and they're like, you know what, I don't believe that anymore. I used to think all that stuff was true and now I've moved on. I figured out that was, that was a delusion. I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I think in a lot of cases like that, at least in my own experience, that change, that, that fundamental change in the way that you see reality is often tied to uh, a moment of crisis in life. In other words, uh, a faith was tested, and, and the person who was tested found that the grace that they were standing in really was a thin ledge, and there really was no place to stand. The grace that they held to, in other words, had more in common with that false grace than with the true. Oftentimes, because we've told ourselves Jesus is supposed to make our lives easier, not harder, when we are tested, and that turns out not to be the case, we fall. We lose our footing. We find there's really not enough room here to stand when we're truly tested. By contrast, you can stand firm in the true grace because it never lies to you about what to expect. In the true grace, Jesus never says, because of me, your troubles are over. Instead, he says, trouble is coming, but do not fear. Your troubles are my troubles, and I will be with you. That's why the true grace is the only comfort for God's chosen exiles. It's an interesting line as Peter signs off. Talks about Mark and what a good guy he is. Those words resonate. Then he refers to, to someone else. She who is at Babylon. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. I'm not saying when I extol you the, the, the true grace that it's the only grace in town. There are as many Gospels as there are gods. The Bible says there's just one true one. Many offers of salvation, but only one that delivers what you need. Is there comfort in false grace? Of course there is. Of course there is. There is comfort in it for a season. But the true grace is the only comfort for God's chosen exiles. The idea of exile is written deep in the psyche of God's people. If you go back in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you'll see in the history of Israel that that kingdom, that glorious kingdom they were given, it was broken, it was shattered, it was conquered and defeated. And the people of God, who you would have thought would be living it up, were dragged into captivity. Some of the most uh, heart-wrenching psalms 
written during that Babylonian exile. The people of God had a memory, like a, a, a genetic memory of what it was like to be in exile, what it was like to be scattered. They were literally carried into Babylonian captivity. So when Peter writes, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings, there's some layers to that. He wasn't traveling through Mesopotamia and ran into this lady in Babylon who's like, you like these hanging towers, gardens? Tell everybody back home that I said hi. Babylon here is a metaphor. Babylon is is a word soaked with the, the, the feeling, the sense of exile. Babylon was the home of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Babylon was the place where God's people were, were, were wrenched from their homeland and forced to dwell. Babylon, the city of exile, the capital of the kingdom, of our triumphant enemy, in this case, Rome. Rome. We're speaking geographically, she who is at Rome sends you greetings. And the she who's being referred to is not not, not a single person, not as elsewhere, an elect lady, but she, a bride, she, the church, who is at Babylon. The church in Rome sends you greetings. That church in exile greets you, and like you, she is chosen. If the sense of exile is built into the psyche of the people of God, the sense of election goes back even farther. God chose a people for himself in the days of Abraham. He delivered his people from Egypt. He brought them into a promised land. Yes, they did go into exile, but he brought them back later. He was with them, his people. He delivered them from exile and he brought them home again. The reality of exile means that you as a believer in Christ, are a stranger in a strange land. You are a sojourner. You are a pilgrim in this world. But the promise of election means that out of that exile, God will bring you home. Now, if you deny the exile, you don't need the election. This is your home. Things here are as they are meant to be. But if you acknowledge the reality of exile, then you need the promise of election. Because if things truly are as bad as they seem to be, you will never make it home in your own strength. At the very beginning of our look at First Peter, I, I said to you that both exile and election are biblical concepts. But they're not equally favored. Right? At, at our moment in the history of the church, exile as an idea is popular Election, not so much. But we could point to periods in the past where Christians were very happy to revel in their election and didn't believe very much in their exile. The roles were reversed. But it seems to me that if we want to see ourselves the way Peter sees us, the way the Holy Spirit sees us, then we have to embrace both. We have to see ourselves as God's elect exiles. I realize that when it comes to election, a lot of hot air has gone into this debate, pro and con, and I'm going to try to avoid contributing to that if I can. But there's a couple of things I want you to consider about this, this idea of chosenness or election. For the apostles, election was not a philosophical argument. 
They don't talk about election as a way of sort of putting forward a philosophy of determinism. When they talk about election, they have something else in mind. When they talk about election, they're simply rehabilitating, reiterating, echoing the Old Testament idea of chosenness. Only it's that Old Testament idea now perfected in Christ, just as the old sacrificial system had broken down, but in Christ's sacrifice it had been perfected so that all of the inadequacies of what we saw in the Old Testament are made perfect in the New. In the same way, the chosenness that had gone before, it it broke down. It, it, It didn't deliver, so to speak, but it was never intended to. It was meant to point forward to a different kind of chosenness that the apostles proclaimed, a higher spiritual reality of Christ's body, the church, a people chosen for himself, for his glory. I think a lot of the difficulty that we have with the idea of election is tied to the fact that we think about it without that Old Testament history in mind. Oh, God would never choose any particular people, we say. That wouldn't be fair. Tell that to the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Hittites or the Canaanites or all of the other people God didn't choose in the Old Testament where he was revealing to us in signs and shadows the way he works. But it cuts both ways, of course. A lot of really stupid things have been said in defense of election. Also without a sense of how the Old Testament ties in with the new. And I'm not going to try to unpack it all, but my hope is that having studied both exile and election through Peter's words, we might come to see that neither of them is a dirty word. That neither of those things is something to be ashamed of. That both of them are necessary for us to understand. They're both essential to understanding who we are in Christ. And that's the point, in Christ. In Christ is what it's all about. We are exiles in Christ. We are elect in Christ. The point of it all is to be in Christ. We're exiles in Christ in that we suffer for His name. We endure humiliation in this life for the certain hope of exaltation in life to come. No one can look at the history of God's dealings with His people and say that He will never suffer. But we are elect in Christ. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. If you believe in him, then you can have confidence that the God who quickened you by the power of the Holy Spirit will bring you home on the last day. No one can look at the history of God's dealing with his people and say, he will abandon you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.